0: Good morning everyone, Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast and I surely hope your day is as sunshiny and joyful as mine. This is a beautiful day and I'm happy to be here with you to report on what I got wrong in my previous podcasts and answer some questions. But before we get to the uh, questions and answers I would just like to draw your attention to Sporting Classics magazine the latest issue don't you love that cover now if you're listening on the podcast you're not seeing the cover so a brief description this is sort of a classic snowy white-tailed buck and doe painting the kind that have been on cards and magazine covers and books for ages and ages. And I just love that stuff. It's nostalgic. It just carries you right out into your your dreams and past experiences back in the woods. I just love wildlife art like this. And Sporting Classics Magazine covers a lot of it. But it also has some good reporting in it, like something from this guy about, um, not by faith alone, about rifle cartridges of all things. Some guy named Ron Spomer wrote that. If you guys get a chance, I'm the Rifles Editor at Sporting Classics Magazine. It is a really nice publication. You might want to check it out. Now, I've got a sheet here with some corrections, I think, on it. And uh, first of all, they would like me to talk about my YouTube award. Many people ask about this and say, isn't that a hole in there? What the heck happened? (laughs) And I've explained it before, but if you haven't heard it, yes, that is a hole It is intentional. YouTube gives out a plaque, sort of an award. When you get as a a YouTuber, you get 100,000 subscribers. Yay. And they give you a reward and boy, and that was really nice. Well, we approached 200,000 and I hey, where's my award? (laughs) No recognition from YouTube. They don't care anymore. But by golly, we surely did. And we wanted to recognize all of our 200,000 subscribers. So I thought, why don't we put a 20 caliber hole in there to represent 200,000 subscribers? So I took a 204 Ruger and we shot a hole in it to celebrate. So that's why. Now, (laughs) <laughs> the next one is going to be the 300,000 subscribers, which requires a 30 caliber hole. And as we approach that, I think I'm going to do a survey and you guys can tell me what you would like me to shoot that with. 308 Winchester, 30-06, 30-30, 3378 uh, Weatherby, please don't make it that one. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to have to put a 30 caliber hole in there to celebrate that one. Now, this uh, award is for the Ron Spomer outdoors channel on YouTube, not the podcast channel. So if you're listening on the podcast, don't get excited. We are not approaching 300,000 on the podcast. It's more like what 30,000, but by golly, we're glad to have everyone here too. All right. This is a question from Dwayne, or maybe it's a correction. He said, um, I'm a bit simplistic about coyote hunting pressure and plants. This must be in reference to a piece I did on coyote populations rising and falling and whether or not we can effectively control predator numbers or something. Dwayne says, um, reduce a predator population and they don't have more offspring, which I said they did. They have more surviving offspring. That's true, they do. And for some predators, the increase of available resources, there's a shorter time between breeding. Um, I take a little exception with that. I've had a little back and forth with Duane about this, and we came to an agreement. Uh, We were pretty much all on the same page. But all of the research I have done on uh, coyotes specifically, but most predators in general, is that they will increase litter size Um, in response to a reduced population of that particular predator. And it makes sense. Uh, I don't know how it happens, probably because they're healthier, they have more food. If there are low predator numbers, each coyote would then be able to get plenty of food and be in top shape, and that would contribute toward having more uh, offspring. Um, And then if the litter is larger, they would also be more successful at bringing those pups to adulthood because there's more prey available. Um, and that seems to be what goes on. So if you shoot a lot of coyotes or trap or poison or however they, they reduce a population when it gets out of control, the response is going to be an increase in litter size, an increase in survival of the pups, et cetera, et cetera, to fill the vacuum because nature abhors the vacuum. That's why there are so many different species out there, all fitting into a different niche to take advantage of the opportunities. So, Good one, Dwayne. Thanks for bringing that up and continue to do research. You know, I sometimes act as if I know all of this stuff. I report on what I do know or think I know based on my experience and research, but that doesn't mean I always get it right. So keep uh, weighing in on that. Now, one thing I do have right here, unless someone else has good information, is that there is not a shorter time between breeding. At least it's not going to happen more than once a year. Consider this, A coyotes generally will mate in January or February. Gestation period is about 60 days, two months. Um, Then they're in the den. The female is with those pups for at least two weeks in the den. Then she comes out and starts bringing food in. Meanwhile, the, the male has been bringing food, but those pups probably aren't coming out until they're at least a month old, probably two. And then she has to have them tag along as she hunts to teach them how. This is all going to take a good three, four, five months. So it's not really possible, seems to me, that that female could have a second litter in the same year. They can't ramp up the breeding cycle. So it's probably all done the way most um, breeding cycles in nature are, which is the sun, uh, the diurnal and nocturnal differences the more daylight you have increasing daylight stimulates the reproduction you have your your uh, pups are born and then as the nights grow longer you go into the winter period and then it signals and the spring comes on again it's breeding time and the cycles go And that's the way deer and elk and everything works so good one though duane you make us think you make us research and that's what it's all about Now, this is Slover, and he says, neck meat is wonderful. I remove what I can with a knife, then I grind it for burger. Then I cut the neck into sections that will fit into my largest pot. Slow simmer that for several hours for a wonderful soup base, a broth, and pick the meat off for a barbecued sandwich, and then save the broth. It's delicious stuff. Boy, that sounds good. But I would throw one little warning in here to Slover and anyone else who wants to use neck meat or the backbone or anything beware the potential for chronic wasting disease prions in the spinal column. Those weird little things called prions that carry this in this infection or whatever you want to call CWA, that's a chronic brain wasting disease like mad cow disease. It's in whitetail and mule deer. I think it's been found in moose and elk, but not nearly as much, mostly a whitetail thing and mule deer. But those prions seem to be pretty much locked into the brain, the spinal cord, and then a couple of little glands up under the neck here. So you want to be careful when you're cutting into that stuff yeah, that you might get CWD. Now, I have never seen a case, a confirmed case of a human contracting CWD from a deer the way some folks have from uh, cows with a mad cow disease. So You know, the the jury is out on that. But if you don't want to take any chances, that neck meat might be wonderful and the soup stock might be wonderful, but CWD might not be so wonderful. (laughs) So just a little word of caution there. Now, this is about bullet ballistics and the Coriolis effect. Some uh, freedom lover. The Earth is spinning at roughly over a thousand miles per hour at the equator, my friend. So just over. Not twenty four thousand yeah, I, I knew that right after I said it. I was thinking, okay, the Earth is twenty four thousand miles around the equator roughly, and since one day is twenty four hours long, you do the math, and you've got a one thousand mile an hour rotation of the Earth, and this guy is straightening me out on that one. This is what I what they politely call a brain burp. there's another word for it. you guys will catch it, but I had one. <laughs> My brain burp was 24,000 miles an hour. That would be a fast spin and a one-hour day, so that's not what's happening. (laughs) A good one there. Thanks for uh, pulling me up short. All right, so now I guess we've got some fresh questions that I can get wrong. huh? Let's see what they've got. Okay, Tundra, Tundra Nomad, like that. Nice handle. Tundra Nomad asks, uh, given the explosion of new calibers recently and with nearly every other possible cartridge already made, what do you think the next focus on caliber will be? What's the next niche market? Boy crystal ball time here. (laughs) Tundra, I really don't know, but I think we're going to see some continuing developments in the straight-walled cartridges for deer hunting back in some of the eastern states where they don't allow modern centerfire bottlenecked cartridge rifles. We might see a couple more of those, but I also think the one caliber that they have not really tweaked with these long high BC bullets is the 25s. The good old 25-06, the 257 Roberts, that 257 Weatherby Magnum, those have been some really popular deer hunting rounds over the years. They're sort of fallen out of favor, and I think the 6.5s have stolen a lot of their thunder, but I think we could get some of that thunder back if we just develop some longer high BC bullets for the 25s and of course the reasons that you don't generally see those bullets is because the twist rates on the standard 25s that have been out for years and years really wouldn't handle them that's why you pretty much peak with a 120 grain bullet and the 25 about six and even the 257 weatherby but if you don't put a fast twist barrel on those you can't handle the bigger longer bullets so nobody makes them and it's a what came first the chicken or the egg kind of a thing so i think somebody needs to take a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 6mm Creedmoor, neck it down to 25 or neck it up to 25, um, somehow mess around with that and give us some fast twist barrels with the short cartridges that'll pretty much mimic the 25-06 velocity. Or maybe they'll want to go a little higher than that. But you've gotta, you're have got you going to have a little bit of an issue there because as you narrow the caliber and the bore, you are going to have to reduce the powder or you'll get a real overbore situation in the barrel burning issue. Uh, Some people don't care about it. They just want to flat out go fast, and that's the price you pay to go fast. (laughs) But then a lot of them will complain that, oh, that's inefficient, and you're going to waste powder, and you're going to burn out your barrel. And well, okay, then don't get it. Just get a 257 Roberts and be happy. That's the wonderful thing about all these new cartridges. They fill a niche, and you don't have to buy it. I just always have to chuckle at guys who complain about new cartridges because no skin off your nose because there's one out there doesn't mean you have to buy it. But yeah, each to to his own or her own because we all get to uh, make our comments and have our opinions. Here's one from John. He asks, what's the difference in terminal impact for hunting between traditional shorter bullets and the modern long bullets? I get the longer bullets give better long range performance, but once that bullet hits an animal, what are the pros and cons of each? Yeah, that is a good question, John. Um, And I don't think it really amounts to much. In my experience, and it's fairly long experience, the um, construction of the bullet has way more to do with it than either the caliber and or the length. Although with a longer bullet, pretty much every time, you are going to end up with more mass driving the nose forward. So regardless how much expansion you get at the nose or how much material you lose to break up or erosion against the, the flesh, you're going to have more weight in that longer shank to continue driving deeper. So one thing that I would expect from the longer high BC bullets is a deeper penetration in any configuration, whether it's a cup and core bullet or an all copper bullet or a partition or bonded or anything. So you could look for that. Um, But as far as expansion, that is pretty much going to be determined by the construction of the nose, its material, the hollow that's within it, et cetera, et cetera, the thickness of the jacket and all that. So I, I don't think we're going to see significant difference in terminal performance. You put that bullet in the right place. And as experienced hunters have noticed, and I have certainly harped on many times, is that it's way more about the bullet in the right place than it is about anticipated performance of that bullet based on its shape and all the rest. Although we do know that building a more tightly controlled, tougher bullet will increase penetration at the expense of expansion. (laughs) And this is why there are so many different bullets out there and why we constantly argue about them because no one's come up with the perfect one for all occasions yet. There's always a balance of some kind. So keep doing your research, keep arguing and discussing this stuff, trying to make sense of it all, and then select what you think is going to work for you. Hey, guys, you may have heard about Patreon. I have mentioned it several times. It's a platform that allows you to become a subscribing member of Ron Spomer Outdoors and contribute, sort of like passing the plate in church. So if you would like to donate and become a patron of Ron Spomer Outdoors and everything we do here, we would love to have you. Just check us out. Go to Patreon and Ron Spomer Outdoors, and you're going to find out all about it. And we'd love to have you as a supporting member. And we thank all of our current patrons. Your support really helps just make these videos. All right, good one. This is Donald and he asks, uh, I have never heard of anyone experimenting with titanium barrels. Is anyone doing that yet? I will say this. Is anyone doing that yet? <laughs> because I don't know. I haven't heard about it. Um, I suspect that titanium barrel does not work all that well with a uh, bullet and the friction, the bullet going down the bore. But I don't know. You know, different metals have different properties. And some of them do not lend themselves to withstanding friction of a bullet. And that might be the the situation with the titanium barrel. Uh, it might also just be the cost. Like steel barrels are working well enough. Who wants to pay for a titanium one? What's it going to do for you? I don't know. Good question, though, Donald. We'll throw this one out to the audience. Anybody know anything about a titanium barrel. Any research that's been done, we are hungry for information. All right, this is Mark, and he asked, Ron, why do you think there's such a fascination with getting custom rifle, but that fascination doesn't seem to translate into shotguns? I come from a background in target shotgun shooting, and the benefits of a well-fitted stock are pretty impressive. The custom-fit shotgun actually shoots where you are looking, And equally important, you can direct where and how the recoil impacts your body with good stock lines, I suspect is what he's saying here. So why, Mark asks, why so much custom barrel emphasis and not shotgun? And I would say this, with rifles, we're nitpicking about accuracy. We've got one projectile and the many things you can do to tweak a rifle can really impact the the accuracy. Whereas with a shotgun, as long as you're delivering a a pattern that's reasonably equally dense, not having a clump of pellets here and a clump there with a big hole in the middle or something. Once you've got that accomplished, there's really not a lot else you can do to customize or tweak a shotgun other than, of course, as Mark said, you've got to have that stock fitting you because that's the way shotguns work. You or your eye is essentially the, the sight It's just like throwing a ball to hit something. Ball throwers of any stripe do not have sights on the ball or a stick sticking out from their nose to look over. They just see it and hand-eye coordination does the rest of it. That's what happens with a shotgun. You see the target, you concentrate on the target, the gun fits so that it is looking where your eye is looking. That's the whole program. Your eyes triangulate the subject and focus on it. When you put the gun up with the proper fit of that gun, it is now pointing where you're looking. Then you've got the shot pattern to take a little fudge factor out of it, and you've got your hit. So once you've uh, tweaked your... You no, know, you can tweak the barrels a little bit, especially the chokes to open and decrease the pattern size and density and all the rest of it and the shot shells and everything. But it's not like with a rifle where you're worrying about oscillations of the barrel and spin rates for your bullets for precision shooting and, and the length of the throat. And, oh, man, there's so many things you can do to tweak a rifle and customize it to really, really be accurate. Now, an interesting thing along this line is that 20, 30 years ago, you had to spend some money to get a custom rifle uh, to really be accurate. It was not all that likely you were going to buy an off-the-shelf rifle that was superior in accuracy. You had to tweak it. And uh, a lot of gunsmiths uh, made a good living blueprinting actions. They would just tune them up and make everything precise. Get everything in line and concentric with the bore, and then you'd have a really, really accurate rifle. So custom rifles became a thing. Then, of course, is the custom as far as looks. It's sort of like customizing your car or your hot rod. You know, when I was a kid, we used to love to hot rod stuff like hopping it up and putting loud mufflers on it and dual exhausts and four on the floor and funky little pedals instead of a normal brake and gas pedal. We had little naked feet and toes and all kinds of crazy stuff. Customizing your personal stuff. That goes on a lot with rifles too, but it also does with shotguns. What I mostly see with shotguns is just beautiful wood and engraving some gold inlaid bird scenes or something, man, you can get a really sweet custom shotgun, but it's mostly aesthetics and there's nothing wrong with aesthetics. I always say the nice thing about a beautiful, beautifully stocked and embellished shotgun or rifle is that even if you're not seeing any game, you can just enjoy looking at your rifle. <laughs> All right, thanks for bringing that one up, Mark. Mark. Duck and Cover. Duck and Cover asks about the 6'8 Western. Why didn't Browning Winchester just start building the two seventy Winchester in a one and nine or one and eight twist? <laughs> Many people have asked that, and they continue to ask it. And I really don't know the absolute answer. I think it a couple of things. One, generally, gun makers don't want to increase or decrease twist rates significantly because they are afraid then that. Owners of those guns will buy their ammunition with the new long bullets in it and it won't quite work right in the new twist rate. I I don't see a problem with this with shorter bullets. A lot of people say, hey, with that fast twist rifling, is my short bullet not going to be accurate? And there's a little evidence that from a target shooter's perspective, that might be true. The, The shorter bullets in a really fast twist barrel are not quite as accurate as the longer ones. But I always say being too, how shall I say this? Being too stabilized is sort of like being too pregnant. This sort of absolutes, you know, you're either pregnant or you're not, your bullet's either stable or it's not. And spinning it faster, I don't think is going to make it unstable. You know, it's just, it's an argument against the very word and the meaning of the word, stable. It's stabilized. What's it going to do if it's a little bit shorter, start flipping end over end because it's spinning too fast? Don't think so. Uh, So, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, but yeah, why didn't they make a faster twist? Well, see, you get a one in eight twist barrel and, and people just don't quite understand what's going on and they might not like the accuracy. Or even if it's not happening, there might be a perception. Somebody might see that and go, well, what does this mean? Do I, do I have to buy that kind of ammunition or this kind of, I don't know. So that might be what's going on. But I think there's a bigger issue that really determines this. Because over the years, I have seen that some rifle makers will put a faster twist on a standard. Because there really isn't an absolute standard in twist rate. You don't have to have a 1 in 10 twist on a 270 Winchester. Some rifle maker could put a 1 in 9 in, and I think some have. And some might put a little bit slower one in. So, I don't think that's an absolute. But this is rifle sales. And I get this argument a lot or a complaint People say, why do they keep coming out with all these new cartridges that they just don't do a heck of a lot more than the old ones? And the reason is they need to gin up sales. They're not trying to take advantage of you and steal your money. They're merely giving you another option, an opportunity, and a lot of folks like that. It's like, gosh, I wish my 270 would shoot a longer bullet. Well, hey, guess what? Here's a 6.8 Western, and it does. Yeah, but it doesn't really do anything that the old 270 does doesn't. Yes, it does. It shoots longer, heavier bullets. And if that's what you want to do, you can buy it. <laughs> now, if you make this argument that, well, they're just trying to make more money, but of course they're trying to make more money. That's why anyone who starts a business starts the business. You can't stay in business if you don't make a profit. And I always say, are you guys really wanting our gun and ammo manufacturers to go out of business? (laughs) That's not going to work very well. So I am all for new developments. They might be minor. There may be no huge improvements in the new cartridges. But if someone likes it. They want to work with it? Great. They've got that option. And us old duffers can stick with the old 270 and our 130 and 140 and 150 grain bullets and be happy. I know I am. I never complain when I'm hunting with a 270 Winchester shooting no heavier than 150 grain bullet because I know it can do the job. So more options, guys, I would say grab them and be glad of it. All right. This is W.C. Sessa. I like the information you provided on the 284 Winchester. And you seem to like that cartridge very much. So it begs the question, have you ever used a 22 284? And what did you hunt, if anything? And what do you think of it? Well, I have never used one. I've shot a .25 .284 and a .6.5 .284, like both of those. But the .22 .284, whoo! Guys, the 284 Winchester is a short, fat cartridge. Kind of the the original short fat, really. Way back in 1964, Winchester came out with it. And it should have been a really popular short action cartridge. Except back in those days, Winchester didn't even have a short action rifle. The Model 70 was a standard length, long action, .30 6. So why did they have this short fat cartridge? Well, they built it specifically to fit their new rifles, two of them, a lever action and an autoloader. And that, of course, limited popularity of the 284 because it really shines in a bold action where you can tweak for precision shooting. The uh, the auto loader and the lever action that they had, the 88 and the 100, those were great little handy rifles, but they didn't have really good triggers. Pretty long trigger pulls, a little bit mushy and creepy, and I don't know exactly why, but they weren't great for accuracy in any capacity. So while they were good. Reasonable distance rifles, they really couldn't take advantage of the potential of that 284, and that of course is a seven millimeter. So you're shooting your .284 inch diameter bullets, and there's enough powder in that little thing because it has a fat case. It's a half inch in diameter at the head, so it has almost the same powder capacity as 280 Remington or 270 Winchester. So you can drive your 140, 150 grain bullets. 28, 2900 feet per second and just get real similar performance in a short action. So the 284 really didn't take off until two things. First of all, I think Mel Forbes of ultralight arms rifle fame back in late 80s, like 88 or so, he built his super lightweight five pound, really four and three quarter pound synthetic stock rifle. Short action, Model 20 in 284 Winchester. And that's what I started shooting with and went, oh, my gosh, I was in love. This was incredible performance in a super lightweight rifle. The idea was this is the ultimate mountain rifle. You don't have to have wheels to drag it up to 10,000 feet. You can carry it. <laughs> and it was wonderfully accurate. I always say I don't think I've ever missed an animal with that particular rifle, and anything that I hit pretty much ended up on the table. So, I really do like that 284. Um, when it became the 65 284. Of course, Wildcatters were necking it down, and they came up with what well, what's essentially the 65 PRC today pretty close in performance to that and they were using a lot um, of long-range target shooting stuff so it became quite popular there and then it translated into a really popular or successful deer cartridge and Norma the Swedish Norwegian company ammunition maker actually legitimized that rather than Winchester doing it I think Winchester missed the ball on this one guys Instead of making it the 6.5284 Winchester, Norma grabbed it first, got it registered with Sammy, and called it the 6.5284 Norma. So it's still out there. I think it's going to be superseded now by the 6.5 PRC. The 6.5 Creedmoor didn't do it any favors either because, yeah, although it's slower, it's still got the 6.5 pretty nicely covered. But, yeah, both of those are really good. Now, necking it down to 22 seems a little extreme to me, guys. <laughs> I don't know what you're looking at. Think about a 270 neck down to 22. Wowzer, bowser. You've got serious overbore issues. Now, you're certainly going to be driving that bullet really, really fast. And as we always say, if you want to go fast, you pay the price, which is limited barrel life because of throat burnout. But I could see where it would, would really work if you wanted a really fast 22. You would easily be pushing a 50-grain bullet probably over 4,000 feet per second, I'm going to guess. Because what are you looking at? Maybe 57, 58 grains of powder in that? Pretty voluminous case for a 22. But my goodness, that bore is so tiny, you're going to be shoving all that. There's a lot of heat going down that little bore. So, yeah, you're going to burn your throat out pretty quickly. But yeah, what would it do for hunting? I'm sure it would be a wonderful long range precision shooter for, for hunting. And with some of the new modern longer. Bullets, the high BC bullets in 22 these days. Oh, my goodness. You've got 60, 70, 80, even 90 grain 22 caliber bullets now. Uh, so <laughs> you could have a lot of fun with something like that. But, uh, of course, you're going to be hand-loading your own ammunition and making your own brass by necking things down and all that. And if you could get this fly out of here, I'd love it. I think I got him. There he is. Championship fly catcher. Didn't need a Magnum for that one. Now, I want to ask uh, W.C. Sessa, who asked this question, what do you think of the 22284 Winchester? I'm kind of guessing you might have one, or at least you're interested in one, and you've done some research on it. So anyone else out there who has experience with the 22284, we would like to hear about it. What sort of velocity do you get? What sort of accuracy do you get? And what sort of barrel life do you get? Be fun to find that stuff out. Now, this is uh, from Chad Williams, who asks something about a Remington 700. Yeah, they still make that. In fact, they're making it better than ever these days. So we're going to be hearing more and more about the 700 Remingtons. But he has one in uh, 270. He said he just got it. Now, does that mean he's got one of the new models that they're cranking out? Or did he find one that was built way back when sitting on a shelf at a dealer somewhere? This I don't know. But he asks, did I make a good choice? And this, again, hinges on what was made. (laughs) I'm suspecting if you got one that was just made by the new Remington, um, you could probably have a pretty nicely made rifle because they have essentially increased all of their quality control. They've tightened up their tolerances in the chambers and the barrels, and they are really striving for getting it right the first time. Perfection. Uh, they, they know that their re- reputation suffered in the later years because they were kind of cranking out sloppy work as they were trying to sell the company and they went bankrupt, of course. So I think they are really going to be paying attention to good quality control. So if you got a brand new one just made, I think it's going to be quite Good. Now, the older ones, you know, Remington had a reputation back in the 70s and 80s, especially the 80s, for kind of being the top drawer off the shelf, reasonably priced rifle for accuracy and reliable performance in a push feed action. So if you pick one of those up, you could really be doing well. But in later years, as the machinery started wearing out a little bit, uh, and I don't think they were paying that much attention to the tolerances and whatnot. All things got a little sloppy. So some people were complaining that they got a lemon, you know, so you just never know. I think you're, I mean, you've bought it, so you might as well get out there, start shooting it and see what you have. And the way you do this, of course, is to get a good, reliable scope mounted on it. Uh, make sure everything's snug and tight. And then start shooting for groups, cautiously, carefully, slowly work your way up if you're doing any hand loading. If you don't hand load, you've got to try different ammunition. Some rifles will like 130 grain bullets, some are 150, some in between. You just never know. And the type of bullet that might like a copper bullet. It might like a a gilding metal jacketed soft lead core, cup and core bullet. You really need to try several of them if you can and to see what that particular rifle likes. And then, of course, you can always play around with the bedding system and the stock, um, vibrations in the barrel, Uh, You can get aftermarket little rings of rubber. I think Limb Saver still sells those harmonic dampeners to uh, put on the barrel to just tweak it so that you're getting perfect oscillations when the bullet leaves the barrel for consistency. That could help with your accuracy. Lots of little tricks you can play with. If you, anyone out there who buys any new rifle and you think it's not very accurate, don't give up hope without making some of these adjustments and tweaking things. Uh, A lot of times guys will clean a barrel after the first 20, 40 rounds through it. And it's not all that accurate. They really give it a thorough cleaning. And then they start shooting again. And within six to 10 rounds, it suddenly starts shooting. Most shooters will report that a rifle doesn't reach its full potential in accuracy until they've gone maybe 50 to a hundred rounds. So, try all of that stuff, try the bedding techniques, float the barrel, full length bed the the stock to the barrel, try those dampeners, harmonics on, on the barrel, and just different tweaks like that until you really know that you don't have a, a good rifle. It just might have a bad barrel or the locking lugs on the bolt face may be out of whack with the barrel so things aren't concentric. And at that point, you have to decide whether to go to a gunsmith and pay the money to get that fixed, blueprint that action, or just sell it and start over. And you might be able to rebarrel. But if it's the the lugs on the locking of the bolt, rebarreling is probably not going to help you. You're probably going to have to get the blueprinting at the same time you get the barrel put on. Lots of options out there, but I don't know, Chad, (laughs) asking me if your particular 270 Remington 700 is is a good choice, Is really going to depend on what you find out that rifle can do. But the action itself is well-respected. It's been around a long, long time, since 1962. And it's beloved by many. And gunsmiths just love to use it for custom rifles. So you've got a good, basic platform to work with here. And I wish you the best of luck in getting it to shoot as you would like. And our next question is, save for next week. (laughs) I don't see another one in here. So all you good folks out there, I really thank you for listening in. And if you're watching on YouTube, thanks for that as well. This is Ron Spomer. Keep sending in those corrections and questions, and we'll see you the next time on Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcasts. Thanks for listening on Honest and Shoot Straight. <music> I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.